you have a Bible, please open it to 2 Samuel. We're now in the book of 2 Samuel. We're considering the heart of God and what, it, what kind of God we serve. Before we open the scripture, let us pray together. Father, we thank you so much uh, for the work of David, for his throne, for his kingship, Lord, for his heart after you. Uh, that is on display before us this morning. I pray that as we consider not only um, his circumstances, but his reaction to his circumstances, I pray that we would learn, Lord, humility. We would learn covenantal faithfulness, that we would learn uh, to see you in our circumstances and to follow you, Lord, wherever you might lead us. We thank you and we praise you in the name of your son and amen. Now, this is actually part two of a two-part sermon. Last week, we opened up with 2 Samuel chapter 1, and what we're looking at is the heart of God. God said of David, he said, this man has a heart after me. And so when we watch David in action, what we are watching is his heart. What we are watching, therefore, then, is God's heart. It's very fascinating. All through 1 Samuel, we are never told what David thinks about things. Nobody tells us the story from inside David. Right? Other people's reactions are recorded, but never David's. And, and I think subtly, I was not convinced at first <laughs> when I first read that idea, but as I watched, I, you know what I, I discovered? That it's, we're sh- being shown, not told. Right? David, David shows us what he thinks. He, he's a man who wears his heart on his sleeve, and so watch his sleeve is essentially what you come to find of David. And so th- that is why when we're looking at 2 Samuel 1 and 2, We have to understand that his heart is right there on his sleeve in everything that he's doing. And because his heart is on his sleeve and it's after God, he has a heart for God, we are watching God's heart. And and we learn what true nobility, what true uh, kingship, what true leadership, what true Christianity is. Now what we've already seen is that David receives an Amalekite who tells David that he killed Saul. Now, he tells him this because he wants to be rewarded. He tells him this because he wants a position in David's new government. Everyone knows that David and Saul are at odds. And so this man is trying to, for for dishonest gain, give David information that he thinks David is going to reward him for. Now, as we we discussed at length last week, how how does David respond? (laughs) By rejoicing? By rewarding him? No, he tears his clothes and puts ash on his head. He is not rejoicing over the death of the very man who persecuted him, the man who made his life a living hell. He does not go after him. He doesn't go after his memory. He acts um, like a true king, like a man that knows the Lord God. He loves his friend. He loves his enemies. He does not rejoice at the fall of his enemies. So what, what he does do is, is defend the anointed of the Lord, and, and slaughters the, the Amalekite who, who raised his hand against God's chosen king. He's defending the throne itself. He's defending the people of God. He cares more about the household of God than he does about any personal conflict that he has with people. And so, being David, he sits down like, like God would in heaven. <laughs> right? God is singing over us even now. When he looks upon us, he quiets us with his love, it says in Zephaniah. He sings over us with rejoicing. And so David expresses the grief not only of, his, of himself, but of the whole nation, and writing a song about his friend Jonathan and his enemy, Saul. He, he gives Israel a song to sing, to process their grief, to unite them together, because nothing unites people like uniting to sing. So now what we're going to do is we're going to, this, the story carries on. David is not done reacting to this news. And, and he's going to continue to not only show us his heart, but to show us the very heart of God. Now, the death of Saul was the signal for David's departure from Ziklag. Okay, he's, a, he's, a, he's in Phil, Philistia. He's a servant to the Philistines. He lives in this place called Ziklag. It's not in Israel. He's apart from the people of God. And, and this is so telling. As soon as he finds out this information, does he just pack up everything and leave? No. He doesn't, right? He doesn't presume, he doesn't presume to understand the circumstances that he finds himself in. He doesn't see what's happened to Saul and say, okay, now it's time for me to go back to Israel. Which, if it were me, that's what I would do. Oh, the enemies are gone, right? We read later of Joseph, um, Jesus' father, when they go to Egypt, they wait until what? Their enemies are dead and then they return. So it makes sense. Once your enemies are dead, it seems like you just go back 
to the place that you wanted to be anyway. But what David does is he, he, he turns to the Lord. He's not going to just act unilaterally. He's not going to act based on his own wisdom. He's not going to act based on his own judgment. He is first going to find out what the Lord thinks. So this is the great humility of David, right? It, it, it seems to me that if of all people, it's obvious to him, it should be obvious to him, what he's supposed to do next. But even he stops and, and considers what might the Lord think about this? Let us seek the Lord first. And, and, and this is what true Christian humility, this is what the heart of a true Christian looks like. They don't just do what they think is right in their own eyes. They stop, they slow down, and they consider what the Lord has to say. And that's what we read in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. It says, After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. Oh, okay, cool, so I'll go. No, David goes even further. It said, David said, to which shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they appointed David king over the house of Judah. So he doesn't just ask God if it's time to go back. He says, okay, where do you want me to go back? This is humility writ large. This is what humility looks like. Based on David's previous practice, as recorded in 1 Samuel 23 and 30, he inquires of the Lord. He has a priest with him, Abiathar, who has the ephod, and he uses those to contact God. From his youth, this is what he's done. We've seen in previous stories when he fled to Abimelech and Nob, why did he go there? He wanted to inquire of the Lord. He, He didn't just leave Saul's house to go do what was right in his own eyes. He left Saul's house to go and inquire of the Lord to, to, to figure out what he is supposed to do. Later, when he delivers the city of Kalod, you remember that story? He goes there and he saves those people. And, and, and instead of assuming that everything is okay and assuming everyone is with him, what did he do? He sought the Lord. Are these people going to turn me over now? And the Lord says, yes, flee. He never presumes to know what God is doing. He never presumes to understand what God is going to do. He is constantly seeking the Lord. And, and, and what we're going to see is when this pattern stops. When the pattern stops, it goes badly for David. When he starts doing whatever is right in his own eyes, everything comes crumbling down around him. Now, I don't know about you, but that's what happens to me. As soon as I'm like, all right, here's what we're going to do. I'm just going to use my sanctified wisdom to determine what me and you and everybody else ought to do. It usually ends up in a big dust bowl. It does not go well. You can hear my kids screaming from down the street. No! It doesn't end well when we just make decisions on our own. And as long as David is submitting his plans and his purposes to the Lord, he succeeds. Now, David was never satisfied unless he could hear the sound of his master's feet close behind him or see a clear indication that his master was just there in front of him or there by his side. Unless he goes with the Lord, he doesn't want to go. Now, the chronicler highlights that this is the difference between a good king and a bad king. In 1 Chronicles chapter 10, what you have in in 1 Chronicles is a parallel to the story here in Samuel. Um, side by side, if you want to have a commentary on each, you read them next to one another, and you learn things. This is actually what it says in First Chronicles chapter 10, verses 13 to 14. It says, so Saul died for his breach of faith. Okay, there's no mystery here as to why he died. It was his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord that he did not keep the command of the Lord, and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord, therefore the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. And what is the, what's the first thing uh, David does after he sings his lament? He, he seeks the Lord. This is the difference between a good king and a bad king. This is the difference between a good Christian and a bad Christian. David's first acts as king of Israel are a righteous judgment, Okay? A defense of the throne by slaughtering the Amalekite, singing a lament for the state, over the state of Israel, 
and seeking the Lord's guidance. If you, if you want to plan, this is always how it works, right? We, we're like, what are we going to do? Everything is going terribly. What are we going to do? Well, you read a story like this, and it tells you what to do. Okay, put dust on your head. Tear your clothes. Sing a lament. Seek the Lord. Make a righteous judgment. Right? This is what it means to have a dialogue with God. You're like, whoa, God, what, what in the world am I going to do? And you're like, oh, you know, my pastor's preaching through 2 Samuel right now. Let's read 2 Samuel and see what I'm supposed to do. Perhaps the Lord, who knows what he's doing, has aligned what we're preaching here at the church with what you possibly might be going through. That's a, a novel idea. I remember realizing that one time. I remember I, I, was, I was newly converted. And I was like, man, I, don't, I just, I want, the, I want the Lord to speak to me. I want the Lord to speak to me. And I have a friend, some of you know him, his name was Liam. And he was sitting in the truck with me, and he knew what was going on with me. And he goes like this, what is your pastor preaching? What is he preaching? What is your pastor preaching? And I was like, what? And he goes, oh, I'm sorry, I think the Lord just spoke to you. (laughs) Did you hear that? Open your Bible to the section that Mark Driscoll is preaching on, and perhaps the Lord has something to say to you. And this is how the Lord works. He wants a dialogue with us. He wants to tell us what he thinks we ought to do. And, and what we want to do is receive a, a letter in the mail addressed to Michael Kloss with specific instructions as if it's the book of Romans. <laughs> but you turn here and you're like, you know what? You know what? You know what America could use is some people who put ash on their head. Right? If you look around the state of the church, you know what we ought to do is tear our clothes and sing a lament. Then what we ought to do is seek the Lord and make righteous judgments. That's perhaps the game plan. Justice, love for friend and foe, singing and seeking the Lord's guidance. There you go. Game plan, right? Write that down, go forth, and do likewise. (laughs) The Lord chooses Hebron for David to reestablish his Israelite residency. He doesn't just send him anywhere. He sends him to Hebron. David's sizable group at this point, numbering nearly a thousand people, appears to have overwhelmed the city of Hebron itself. Hebron was not a small city by any means. But as it says, right, they spread out into the towns of Hebron. So they're in the suburbs. So David not only takes over the city center, he takes over the suburbs. These people are filling this town to overflowing. Now, accordingly, the city of Ziklag, where he was, is now utterly abandoned. He, he, he leaves it and doesn't look back. He doesn't leave it and leave some things there. He doesn't leave and leave some people there. He, God says go. He, he uproots everything and leaves and doesn't look back. Because sometimes that's what God calls us to do. Right? <laughs> right? What did Lot's wife say? Don't look back. Leave this city and don't look back. And, and what God wants David to do is leave Ziklag and not look back. Now, there are several very, very specific reasons he sent to Hebron. And this part actually was quite revealing. This is shocking how many reasons there are, frankly. Now, what I don't want to do is say, okay, listen, um, I can tell you every reason you're living in Linwood. I can tell you every reason, and it's full of all this biblical meaning as to why you live in Seattle. I don't want us to go through this and think, okay, Mike is now going to explain to me why I am where I am. I'm not going to do that. What I'm going to do is explain all the many reasons David was put in Hebron so that you understand that there are many reasons that God puts people where he puts them. Okay? <laughs> there is a lot going on to God's decision to put you where you are. And what I want you to see is how much is going on. Right? This is why we're allowed to see behind the curtain. We're allowed to see what's going on in the strategy room. And, and what that does is it, it allows us to know that there is the same kind of strategy and planning going on in our own lives. Okay, we can't always make these one-to-one correlation comparisons. What we have to understand is God has deep, 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 meaningful reasons for doing what he's doing. Now, Hebron was the largest city of refuge in the region. In the region. Now, what is a city of refuge? Well, we, we are first told about the city of refuge, Hebron is a city of refuge, in Joshua 21.13. Back when the land was being taken and they were handing out uh, bits of it to everybody, we're told that this is a city of refuge. And to the descendants of Aaron the priest, they gave Hebron, the city of refuge, for the manslayer. Now, that's very important. 
Deuteronomy 19 lays out the rules for cities of refuge. Hebron was specifically set aside as a haven for one who was falsely accused of murder. So if you're falsely accused of murder, you get on your camel as fast as you can, and you make for the city of refuge. And then what the elders of that city do is they welcome you and they protect you. And they don't let the manslayer, uh, the, the revengeful one, come and put you to death. They defend you, and you have to stay there because you're falsely accused. Now, David is sent to this city because he's being falsely accused. His enemies think that he had something to do with the death of Saul. And God wants to send him to the city as a demonstration of the fact that he is falsely accused. The lies that they're telling about David will not stand. David, go to Hebron, right? You're, you're being accused of murder, and what, what ought you to do? Go to a city of refuge, okay? It also happens to be very large. Therefore, your 1,000 people that are with you will all have accommodations. Now, Hebron is also a Calebite city. Now, it's allotted to the tribes of Caleb, according to Joshua 14 and 15. And and the reason is even more fascinating. Why did Caleb receive Hebron of all places? Well, back when they sent spies into the land, one of the cities they went to was Hebron. Okay, And, and, And the other spies said, oh, we can't go there. We can't do anything about that. It's full of giants. It's full of giants. We can't go and slaughter giants. It's terrifying. We can't go into the land. The land is terrible. The land's going to devour us. And so for this um, lack of hesed, lack of loving kindness to God, Israel is uh, sent into the desert for 40 years, and they all die, right? And some of the men, Caleb being one of them, get to actually go and participate in the taking of the land. And so Caleb, who's like, nah, giants are no problem, (laughs) he's given the city of giants. Its earlier name, Kiriath Arba, meant city of Arba. Arba was among the most famous of the ancient giants, the Anakim. Now, I understand, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, the, there were giants, okay? Uh, this is one of those things where if you have a problem with the fact that I'm saying there really were giants, okay, they're like 13 feet tall, six-fingered giants, I'm not kidding, they really did exist. Come, come and talk to me, and we will discuss the Anakim separately. I'm not going to get into a massive defense of the fact that there were Anakim. There were Anakim. They were giants. They were huge, Okay? Now, Caleb has one of the greatest speeches in all of Scripture, and it's in Joshua 14. I love it. This is Caleb. This is old man Caleb, okay? Because he's younger. Uh, he was one of the spies originally. His entire generation dies in the desert, and then he's sent into the, into the promised land to conquer it. So at that point, he's not what we would call a young guy anymore. But this is what Caleb has to say. I am still as strong today as I was in the day of Moses. My strength now is as my strength was then for war and for going and for coming. So now, give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day, for you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. Well, first off, like, let's talk about the humble brag here for a moment, right? He's, <laughs> I'm still just as strong at, at 60 as I was at 20, he's saying. I'm just as strong now as I ever was. And then he switches over to, maybe the Lord is going to give this to me. And, and this is what I love. This is Christian biblical masculinity. Okay? He knows what his strength is. And yet he understands that his strength is not what is going to give him success. It's the Lord who's going to give him success. And, and I love it because it's a long time before. You, they never come back to tell us what happened. Is Caleb go up to the fortified city of the Anakim and is he slaughtered? Right? Did they treat him like a basketball? What, what happens to him? Well, there's this almost toss-away line in Judges chapter 1. It says this, and, and Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. Oh, so the Lord did give him success, just as he, he thought it was possible. He didn't know for certain. He's not going to presume. This is, right? And this is the connection in people's mind that God is making with the city of Hebron. David doesn't just assume that he's coming back to the land. He seeks the Lord. Caleb, I'm going to give him the city of Caleb, who, who, though he was still a mighty man, did not assume that his strength was going to give him success. And, and what we are told here, kind of, but you have to sort of sit down and think about it. Hebron is the city of, uh, of giant slayers. It's the city where giant slayers live. It was Caleb's city because he slaughtered the giants. It's David's city now because what, what, who did he slaughter back when he first became a, a prince in Israel? A giant. This is where giant slayers live. And if, you have, if, if all the Israelites who know their catechism are like, whoa, 
<laughs> I get what he's doing there. This is where this, this is, uh, where is David in Israel? He's in the city where they slay giants because he's a giant slayer. Who is David then? Right? Who is God? What, what is God saying about David? It's a commentary. Go to this city. He is innocent of murder, and he's a giant slayer. He's a great man like Caleb was. And, and Caleb said that you could conquer this land. Caleb said that you could take it. Caleb said that it was glorious. Caleb said that it was beautiful, and so does David. Okay? David is going to unite the land like Joshua did, but one who is greater than Joshua has arrived. Hebron was a city of giants, and then it became a city of giant pillars. And, when, <laughs> and this is how we have to think about places like Seattle. Okay, it's, right? it's, it's a place of what? Rank paganism. And therefore, we're sent there because we are supposed to be the slayers of rank paganism. Okay? It, it, it's a city of giants because we're giant slayers. And, and, and fine, right? I, it's like St. Crispin's Day speech from Henry V. People are moving away. That's fine. More glory for us. Right? Later when they're writing the history books, it's the people, the people who stayed are going to get a greater portion of glory than they would if people stayed. They're like, fine, leave. More for us. Okay, anyway. <laughs> if you ever want to know what you ought to do about this, think of Caleb the Giant Slayer and go and listen to St. Crispin's Day speech from Henry V, and, and you will see, right? I don't, this is my band of brothers. I, don't want any, I wouldn't have one more man from England come and help us, Henry V says. This is our glory. And that's how Caleb is, and that's how David is. We are sent to the place full of giants because we're giant slayers. You are raising, right? You're raising children, and, and you want them to understand there are dragons in the world because they're dragon slayers. Now, yet another reason he is sent to Hebron. He had married the widow of a Calebite, Calebite, Abigail. Remember Abigail? What kind of woman was Abigail? She's inherited all of her husband's property now. So not only is David sent here because he's innocent, he's sent here because he's a giant killer, he also has huge estates nearby. And he has been wandering around in the desert without any resources. Now he's put into the city where nearby he has a great deal of resources. He has a, a very wealthy estate nearby that he owns with his wife now. And so he has all the extra people, all the extra food, all the extra supplies he can get. So he goes from a man wandering in, in the wilderness to a man now firmly established in one of the great cities of Israel, where nearby he has all of the resources that he can use. Now, this isn't the only reason, though. Hebron was a city of refuge, but it was also associated with the Aaronic priesthood. It's a sacred city, as I read before in Joshua 21. Hebron is, is not just an Aaronic city, right? He has a, 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 he has a priest with him who, who descends from Aaron. So he's reestablishing that priesthood after Saul had slaughtered them all. So he's reestablishing in one of their cities an Aaronic priest, a descendant of Aaron. He's reestablishing the true worship in Israel. But also nearby, according to Genesis 23, is a little plot of land purchased by a man named Abraham. He bought the land so that he could bury his people there. So there is David. Imagine him on the wall of, of Hebron, and here are the donkeys bringing in all of his goods from his local place. There's all his people spread out, and in the distance are mounds, burial mounds. And those burial mounds have a few people named Abraham and Rebekah and Isaac, and they're buried nearby. So he's standing out looking upon the faithful graves of the faithful saints and this is the place that God wants him to start this is where he wants him to draw strength from this is his base of operations for what he's about to do next and it's full of meaning it's full of rich meaning it was appropriate for David who was beginning to conquer and inherit the land to begin by setting up his throne at Hebron reconquering the land for Yahweh and this is what I mean now they call it the shadow conquest if you ever heard of the shadow conquest if you go back to Genesis the path that the patriarchs took through the promised land before it was the promised land is the same path Joshua took when he conquered the land. So the first thing God does generations and generations and generations before they take the land is they send the, the patriarchs to place altars along the path. So the first thing that goes into the land is the worship of God. The, thing, the next thing that comes later is the conquest of the land. 
right? So our job, if we're in a place like the promised land that we haven't yet taken control over, our first job is to go around and build as many altars as possible, that later this is where the path of the conquest is going to take. So he sets up in Hebron, where it's the first place in the promised land that Abraham had put an altar. And he's got a priest descended from Aaron with him. And again, if you have studied your catechism in Israel, you're like, this is loaded. This is insane. What is God doing right now? And it's just like the life of Jesus. As Jesus goes and is accumulating in himself more and more types and shadows of the Old Testament, it's shocking by the time you come to the triumphal entry how excited and out of their minds everybody is. This is the son of David. This is the one we've been waiting for. This is the son of man. This is the Messiah. And, and, and it's the same kind of a thing you see here with David. He's accumulating types and shadows upon himself. This is the man who descends from Caleb because he's a giant slayer. This is a man who descends from Abraham. He's now there where the graves are. This is a man who's wealthy. This is a man who is innocent of murder. This is a man who's restoring Israelite worship. It's full of meaning. And, and, and this is why, right? This is why Judah would come. Why would Judah all of a sudden come and make him king? Well, how could you not? How could you not? You're like, somebody make a crown as fast as you can and stick it on this guy's head. Now, there is a metaphorical thing as well. Hebron stands 19 miles south-southwest of Jerusalem at some 3,000 feet elevation. It was, in fact, the most important town in Judah and one of the highest towns in Judah. So Hebron was on a high ground. So when David goes up to become king, he's literally ascending to the throne. And, and God always... <laughs> Whenever these kinds of things happen in the Old Testament, I just got it in heaven with a smile on his face. He's like, let's one more time go with this metaphor of ascending to the throne. Because one day he's going to watch his boy ascend to the throne. And it's a story, he, he, he loves the anticipation of it. Let, let's tell, let me tell that story again, how my boy is going to ascend to the throne in heaven. I'll do it with David. Let's see if anyone's paying attention. David has been living outside the land in Ziklag, Symbolically, the land of Israel was the highest place on earth. I know that it's not the highest physical place on earth, but it's metaphorically the highest place on earth because it's the closest place to heaven. This is where God dwells. Therefore, Israel, regardless of its elevation, is the closest land to heaven. Now, moving from exile into the land always involves going up. The language also emphasizes that David is ascending to become a high one, as Saul had ascended Ramah, the same thing, even with the king that didn't work out. God doesn't get tired of this idea of ascending to the throne. David has been suffering a kind of death. He's been cut off from the land of Israel. He's been hunted in the wilderness. He's been without supplies, and now he's being raised up. He's being exalted. We were told it's the third day after the fall of Saul, and now he's ascending to the throne of Judah. And, 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 for, for the Israelites at the time, right, their catechism, they're looking back to all the glorious things that David is fulfilling from their past. Well, at the same time, David is laying all kinds of groundwork for, for the saints later to look back and say, oh, this is like what Jesus did. So the whole episode here is full of meaning that goes both backwards and forwards. It's both our history from, from their history at that point and their eschatology at that point where they come from, and where they're going. Now, at Hebron, David becomes a clan chief, a tribal leader. The text says that the men of Judah anointed David, and later, when he was anointed over the whole Israel, later it's the the elders of Israel that do it. But why is Judah reacting this way? Why is Judah see all of this and say, well, let's gather together and make him a king? It's because they recognize a prophecy. If you turn with me to Genesis 49... There is a prophecy of Judah that Jacob makes on his deathbed. So if you go to Genesis chapter 49, it starts in verse 8. And this is what Jacob had to say about the tribe of Judah. Judah, your brothers, shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, 
until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. Now, every one of those words has to do with ultimately with who? Jesus. But what you see here in David is that this is, this is the realization of comments that Jacob made, prophecies that Jacob made, that have never been fulfilled like they're being fulfilled right now with David. Right? His foe tried to kill him. How'd that go? He's now going up to the throne. The scepter shall not leave his hand. We're going to be told in 2 Samuel 7, God is going to say to them, I'm putting a scepter in your hand that I'm not going to take away. And we're going to find out as well, for those who will not take David's olive branch, he will bathe himself in their blood. He, he is not just a maker. He's not just a peacemaker. When people refuse peace, he will make peace. And what do we see with Jesus? When we, we refuse to make peace with him. And so he came and he covers his robes with blood. There is a great deal in this prophecy that is fulfilled in David. There are still some things like the foal tied to a vine that isn't actually fulfilled until Jesus when he comes in the triumphal entry, but that's a story for another day. Now, David was anointed by Samuel as king-designate. He was again anointed here as a tribal chief. Later, he'll be anointed as the king over all of Israel. Now, this triple anointing marks out three stages in his career. He goes from warrior to chief to high king. Warrior to chief to high king. David's threefold career is typological. Jesus was anointed with the Spirit at baptism when he became a warrior. He was raised in the Spirit, in the Spirit to become a tribal chief of Israel. And then he was exalted to the throne of the Father in heaven, where he becomes the high king of all things. Now, the sequence also provides a perspective on the progression of the Christian life. In baptism, we are anointed with the Spirit as warriors. We are not yet prepared to reign. As we are faithful in war, we become rulers on a small scale, tribal chiefs of a, of a kind, patriarchs and matriarchs. We become elders and Titus two women. We become people who are what? Overseeing the household of Israel, overseeing the local church, because that's what elders and Titus two women do. They oversee the tribe, <laughs> right? And then you go into the ground and you're raised on the last day, and where, what do you do? You ascend into Christ to become a high king. You will inherit the stars. And so you see in David's life the life of Israel. You see in David's life the life of Christ. You see in David's life the life of all of us. Man and woman, child and, and grown-up. This is what it means to be a child of God. This is the process that we go through. We go through the exile and war. We come, become tribal chiefs, and we become high kings and queens. And when you're a high king and high queen in Narnia, you're always a high king or queen in Narnia. Now, the church militant, as it marches to the four corners of the globe, moves through this same process. We saw what? The ministry of Jesus corresponds to the career of David. The apostolic period is the period in Hebron, when Jesus had been exalted and poured out his spirit, but still has kingdom centered in Israel. And then the final stage comes after the destruction of Jerusalem, when the church emerged fully from the shadows to do what? To rule the world. Right? <laughs> we were parasitic there on, on the Roman Empire, and, and we used them to climb to the top. All roads lead to Rome. It's the best empire that we could have possibly taken over because they had the largest right, reach. And how is Western, Christian Western civilization doing? Okay, well, that's a trick question. Okay? I'm not asking for the last 10 years. Okay? <laughs> Moderns tend to think that way. I'm asking about the last 1,000 years. How is the West doing? Right? Are we in our kingly phase? I would say so at this point. We're not mere chieftains. Now, what we see here, right? Now, is David the high king yet? Is David ascended to the throne and he is now the high king? No. Is he still in exile? No. Is God fulfilling his promises to him? Yes. Does he fulfill them all at once? No. And what you see in the life of David is what happens to the life of all saints. We are promised things, and we want some now. But we rarely are promised things, right? God, in his infinite wisdom and goodness, never says, here, I promise to give this to you. And then out of his other hand, he gives it to you. There's always a process. 
right? There's a lot for David to be discouraged about. Saul's sons, Saul's army, Saul's tribe is still running around ruling Israel. The Philistines have still conquered part of the land. Okay? And, 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 and if, he, if he sat in Hebron looking out over the wall and he sees the mounds of his ancestors and his enemies on every side, it, there is a, a reason to be pessimistic. But given what you've heard so far, should he be? What does God say about his circumstances? What does God say about his mission? What does God say about God's purposes in the life of David? And, and is God moving him along? Oh, Yes. Is he yet arrived at, at the ultimate destination that he was promised? Oh, no. And this tension is the tension of the Christian life. Now, what I also want to point out is that we should put a little star right here. Because for a long time, God has been promising a king in Israel. And for the first time, you see the king, the true king of Israel, seated on a throne with a crown upon his head. But... There's a lot left undone. And, and, and it's a lot like, right, does anything good come out of Nazareth? On the day of Pentecost, how many people were in the upper room? How many people were in the upper room waiting for the Spirit to descend out of heaven? Does anyone know? Sorry, what's that? 120. Okay. Does that seem like a conquering army? Right? Does David in Hebron seem like a conquering army? So much of our life is in the Hebron phase <laughs> that we have a, a very difficult time understanding it. Like, does anything good come out of Nazareth? Does anything good come out of Renton? Does anything good come out of Washington State? Right? I, and and when, when I saw some guys that I hadn't seen in a while at Presbytery, and they were like, does anything good come out of Washington? I was like, oh, see, what you, you're setting up some gospel glory there, brother. And that kind of joke. I don't take it lightly. Here is David, he's, he's a tribal chief over one city, and, and it's kind of understandable why too many people wouldn't be excited. But if you, t- if you step back and you look at everything that God is doing, all the types and shadows fulfilled, all of the things going on in the life of David that he doesn't quite even understand himself, you see that this is a fun and an exciting story. It puts everything that he's struggling with into context. Now, what we have to understand is that this is the phase that most of us live in, okay? If you turn to Haggai, Haggai, that is a book in the Bible. I was uncertain myself, but it truly is there. Haggai chapter 2. This is what the prophets, who also compiled the book of Second Samuel, had to say in their own day. It says, Who is left among you to the exiles they are speaking? Who is left among you who saw this house, Solomon's temple, in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it as as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Right? And and some of us, right? I am a new believer. Uh, I'm a first, right? My parents were not, didn't raise me a Christian. I'm a first-generation Christian kid. I was only converted at the age of 24. Um, I don't don't necessarily look back to some glory age of Christianity from my youth. I, I don't have such a thing. I'm more in the Hebron phase. We've moved out of exile. We're moving up in the world. It's how I tend to look at it. But if you are a Christian who's been with us for a while, and you're thinking, man, I used to know how glorious the temple was. Right? Imagine those poor old guys who came back from exile, and they see that glorious temple in the state that it was in. And they're standing there like, what do we do now? What, what could we possibly do now? Look at the state of things. And, and the prophet says, listen, <laughs> pick up your trowel, pick up your sword, get to work. My promises have not failed. I am still working and moving. You are in a Hebron phase. You are in this phase where it's very difficult to see what I am doing. But the point is work. The point is believe. The point is fear not. Now, so rather you've come out of exile to Hebron, <laughs> right, or you've been pushed back to Hebron from more glorious Jerusalem, either way, here we are. And is there a reason that we are where we are? Is there purpose to it? Is the one in heaven 
right? If, if you could see all the things going on in your own life and the history of your people as far back as it goes and wherever they came from, the individual stories being told. Uh, here, here's one. Gabe Pineda and I just yesterday realized we were baptized in the same baptismal font. <laughs> it's like, I, I don't know why that touches me so much. Because the unity that we have is the water of baptism. The unity that we have is the, st- the, s- the story being told in which we are characters where we hardly understand the types and shadows of, of what's going on. We went down in the same grave and we came out of it. And if that doesn't explain the unity of the church, I don't know what does. So here we are in Hebron. And is it, right, are, we on, are, we, are we on the ropes? Are we on, on, on the, right? Are we caught off guard? Probably, most of us are. But is God? Or is where we are being planted rich with meaning? The first man who ever lived was made out of dirt. God took a, made a garden for him, took the man, and planted him in the garden. It says he took man and put him in the garden. He wasn't made in the garden. He was planted in the garden. Because why? Later we're told, a blessed man is planted by streams of living water. We are all of us planted. Now, you may be in Ziklag, you may be in Hebron, <laughs> you may be standing there looking at the demolished temple. And all of us, though, are, it's the same story. The promises of God do not fail. The work of God does not end. We ought not fear. We ought not run. We ought not be bewildered. We ought to say, what's next? What, what did David do? What, right? <laughs> he sings a song. He says, okay, God, what, what's next? What's next? Oh, that's, oh, going back to Israel. Okay, well, what's next? Oh, go to Hebron. Okay, cool. So he goes to Hebron. And what we're going to see is this is, as long as he's doing this, he's successful. What, what, what next, Lord? What's the next thing? What's the next thing? And, and this humility that he has to not have it all figured out for himself, that he's constantly seeking the Lord, that he's constantly thinking well of others, this humility is, is the heart of David, is why he was chosen to be king. And, and we're going to very quickly look at this, but the last thing that he does here in reaction to the news before the Civil War starts, because the Civil War is about to start, <laughs> this is what it says that David does next. When, when they told David it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, may, may you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. And I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strong, be valiant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead. And the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Now, if, if you heard that someone had honored your persecutor, would you go and find those people and kiss their hand? Would you go and find those people and say, I honor you for what you have done to this man who hated me? David is wondering, hey, did anyone find out what happened to Saul and his body? Oh, these men went in the middle of night and they, and they done this great thing? Well, okay, get parchment and ink. Somebody come in here and we're going to write a letter because that is glorious what they have done. And, and, and the word is you said, right? The, Saul had shown the people of Jabesh Gilead loyalty. By coming in, in a night and in, in saving them. And then they showed Yesed to him by going and bringing his body back. And that's what Yesed is. Loyalty shown for loyalty received. I am loyal to you, and for that loyalty, you're loyal to me. And this idea we see in the New Testament. We love God because what did he do? He first loved us. Right? Everything we do is reciprocal. The covenant faithfulness that God shows us is supposed to, from us, bring forth covenant faithfulness. True nobility in the household of God recognizes it for what it is. You were loyal to him, and I, therefore, pray that God will be loyal to you. And, that, and I am promising to be loyal to you for this loyalty that you have shown. And so he's not just humble, David. He understands covenant loyalty. He understands what the household of God is all about. And it's this loyalty that we receive from one another that we then show to one another. This loyalty that we receive to God that we show back to God. And that loyalty that we show God is returned to us as loyalty. Now, I, I like this. If you're going to play politics, it's kind of, he's, he's encouraging them for what they have done. But at the same time, he's like, hey, come on over to my side. 
<laughs> and he kind of does a thing there, and it's, it, and, and you know, this is the kind of stuff. He's not Machiavellian. He's not disingenuous. But he recognizes his own people, and his own people are people who were loyal to the anointed of the Lord. He's like, if those people are going to do that for Saul, I'm a good king. I'm now a new king. What are you going to do for me? Right? I want that kind of loyalty. I'm going to show loyalty to it like I did to Saul, and I'm going to show loyalty to you for doing it. And, and this bond here, right? This is whatever their camps are, whatever their preferences are, whatever theologian they like, whatever leader they're behind, there's this unity, and the unity is this yesed. They recognize it in one another. They build upon it. And, and you know, there, there's a few other echoes going on here. We read in Ruth chapter 2, verse 20. This is what Naomi said, right? This is, this is David's ancestor. This is what Naomi has to say. This is, a, this is a cultural thing in the house of David. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he, Boaz, be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Right? This is a household culture. Naomi said, Oh, Boaz showed you, you said. And that's the word. Well, may God show him, you said. David later on is like, oh, you showed you said to him, right? May God show you you said. And, and this is like a household culture. I mean, look at the, the difference in generations between Naomi and David. And they know, right? This is why when David comes on the picture, you see that this is a long story, a long faithfulness coming to fruition now. And so we sometimes lack hope, in, right, for what's going on in the world. But, but if you, right, be Naomi, Right? And, and if you are the kind of woman Naomi is, the, the children that are, that are growing up under you will grow up to be the kind of people David is. You see this connection here. If, if, if you encourage the younger people in this church, if, you're, if you have children or if you are a person in this church and you're surrounded by young children <laughs> and younger people, be Naomi. And, and what you get out of that are David's. The last echo is found in Joshua chapter 1. And if we go there, we see that what David is doing is he is, he understands his position. He understands his position in Israel. He understands what is required of him. And what is required of him is unity. What is required of him is solidarity, coherence. He needs the people of God to rally now. And, and this is what Joshua had to say. There's a speech in, in Joshua 1, and I'm going to give you the first verse and the last verse because it sounds an awful lot like what David says. This is what Joshua said. He said, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. And then he says in verse 9, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. In in a transition of power from Moses to Joshua and now from Saul to David, David understands exactly the kind of language he's supposed to use. And what he's saying is, listen, God has promised us wonderful things. And so don't lose heart. Be strengthened. Do Do not be fearful. Be strong in the Lord. He's commanded this because he has a plan. He, he's rallying the people of Israel around this unity, around this yesed that God has shown the whole household of Israel. And, and that is Christian leadership. Okay? Now, all of the chaos inside the church in the United States, there's different ways to deal with it. Okay? We can be opposed to all kinds of things. But my question is, what are we for? What are we for? What is Redeemer for? What are the families in Redeemer for? I, I, I'm pretty sure if a lot of you are like me. I can tell what you're against. <laughs> right? The list is long. But sometimes in my own mind, I'm like, what are we for? And I have a harder time thinking of that. And, and are we in a moment of transition, uh, transition? Right? Is Moses gone and now we're Joshua? Saul's gone and now we're David. Right? And we're in this transitional po- place in the church. And so what are we going to be for? What are we going to rally around? What's the flag in the ground that we're calling everyone to come to? For Joshua and for David, it was the same thing. Later, the prophets, right, when they brought the people back from exile, it's the same thing. God is faithful to you, and so be faithful to him. God is with you, so do not be afraid. God is with you, so there is a plan and there is a purpose. 
And so whether you're in Ziklag, or whether you're in Hebron, or whether you're standing there in the dust bowl that is the former temple, the story is the same. You are God's people. Be unified. That's your purpose. Let's rally around that. Let's be for that. The people of God come here. And what are we going to do? We're going to faithfully serve one another, like the men of Jabesh Gilead, and we're going to faithfully serve the Lord. The promise to Abraham was for the nations, right? What happened in the garden affected all of mankind. So the unity, unity is the purpose of human history. And the world is not going to have unity until the church brings it to them, right? We bear, right? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3 through 6. There was one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to, to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That is the hope of Israel. That is the mission of Israel. That is the hope of the world, and that's the mission of the world. And, and if we're going to go and give this unity and hope to the world, how are we going to do it? Well, how does David do it? How is David unifying Israel? Right? By hating his enemies? By worshiping? What does he do? He, he, he tears his clothes and puts ashes on his head, and he, he gives a righteous judgment for the man who slaughtered Saul, and he sings a lament, and he seeks the Lord, and he follows the Lord's instructions, and he praises what the Lord praises, and he curses what the Lord curses, and he, he gathers the people of God right around what they all ought to be for, and that is God. The yesed of God. The faithfulness of God. That is our unity. That is what draws us together, and that is, that's what we are offering the world, right? We're, we're not offering them um, a better form of education. We're not offering them a better style of, right, a more ethical business model. We're not offering the world prettier homes. We're not offering the world, right, efficiencies. What we are offering the world is hope and unity and, and faithfulness to God for the faithfulness that he has shown us. And how are they going to know that he was faithful to, to a mankind who didn't want him unless we go and tell the world? How are we going to demonstrate unity to a world that needs it if we don't have it ourselves? Okay? What are you and your household for? This is Christian leadership. This is what the men and women of this church need to be about. Right? This is the heart of God. This is the heart of a true king. This is the heart of a true queen. This is the true heart of God. And this is the kind of community that we need if we are going to do anything here in Hebron. And just like Abraham, it starts with, with an altar. Okay? Right? Just like with David, it starts with Naomi. So what is the next thing for you? What's the next act of faithfulness to God for the faithfulness he's shown you that, that you're required to do? Right? That's what we need to focus on. What are we for? And as you go from here, that unity and that hope and that promise that God has, that faithfulness that he's shown us, that faithfulness that you see in one another, that is what we need to be for, and that's what we need to build on. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and kindness to us. We thank you, Lord, that you are always faithful to us, uh, that though we cannot understand what you are doing in our lives, often there is a, an abundance of meaning and purpose and planning, planning behind what you're doing. And I pray, God, that as we go from here, our faith would be strengthened, that we would, Lord, consider what we are for, that we would consider the faithfulness that you have shown us, the faithfulness that we see in one another, and that we would build a unified community around the goodness of the Lord that we share together. We thank you and we praise you in the name of your Son, and amen.